Well, good morning, everyone. As we gather for worship this morning, let's hear the words of this song together.
Good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. A few announcements for you. Um, probably I should first say my name is Dee Stahl. If you don't know who I am, I know a lot of names of people in this room, and I know a lot of faces, but there's faces I don't recognize either. So um, I'm the Congregational Care Coordinator here at um, Harderwike. So um, if I've not met you before, I'd love to chat with you sometime. So come and say hello if you'd like. Um, at this time, if there's kids that would like to go to children's ministry, Haley's over here at the door, and she will um, get the kids downstairs for you, so you go ahead and head that direction. Um, also, I just want to um, let you know that this morning there is a Mika's Lunch fundraiser going on here on campus. Um, so for our fellowship time following the fusion service, we're going to uh, meet downstairs under the carport this week because Mika's Lunch is going to be mo moving food out of the kitchen and out the door into the parking lot this direction. If you don't have lunch plans yet, grab some Mika's Lunch. Um, they're doing, I think, pulled pork or roasted pig or something like that, but it's delicious. Um, so fellowship out here, grab your lunch out there if you want to grab lunch. Um, also, I just want to thank you for your, your tremendous support of Heart Awake Ministries um, and just remind you that there are several ways that you can um, give of your offering and tithes. We have um, text giving, online giving, there's boxes um, by the entrances, you can drop a check off in the office, those sorts of things. So um, with that, let's go into prayer. And you can hear these words from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Lord Almighty, we praise you for being our creator and our everlasting father. You are the giver of all that is good and wonderful in our life. We worship you as we notice the beauty that surrounds us, every blade of grass, every grain of sand, every drop of water, and know that it could only have come from you. Yet we know that your dwelling place is even more lovely and we yearn for that place, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, in those times that we may forget that this beauty comes from you, or for those times that we fall short and our actions are not honoring to you. Teach us, Father, your ways, and let your Holy Spirit guide us as we follow you. This morning, Lord, we think of those in our community who are struggling with health issues, with hard diagnoses. We think of those who are preparing for or recovering from surgeries or those going for, through prolonged treatments. Lord, give them your patience and your wisdom to journey through their individual circumstances. And we pray for those this morning who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Give us the grace to allow them to grieve in their way, in their time, Lord 
but we ask, but look, Father, we ask for your comfort, your healing love, and your care to surround them now. Lord, we know that you are the author of peace, of love, and of goodness. Yet we see so much chaos and instability around us. God, I just pray for peace and unity in our nation, in our state, in our city, and right here on this corner of 160th and Lakewood Boulevard. Please temper minds, reach hearts. Please reach people in their deepest need and help them to feel the profound peace that only you can offer. We praise you today, Lord, for Heart Awake Ministries, for Pastor Bill, for Pastor JB, and Pastor Aaron, as they lead us in our communities across campus, bringing your word and supplying us with the tools that we need to be disciples in your name. Lord, we love you, and we pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, good morning, Fusion. Can I get a good morning? Oh, you, you read my mind. You gave me a good morning anyway. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. It is summer in West Michigan, and there are very few things like it. Amen? Um, my name is Pastor JB, and uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, I would love that opportunity. I say it every week, and I mean it. Uh, I've been able to connect with some folks uh, over the last couple of weeks, and it, it's been a delight. And so looking forward to, to many more of those connections. We, uh, we moved in, so get a whoop whoop, yeah. Um, yeah, my wife's the loudest cheer there. And uh, one of the beauties of living in Holland is uh, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday, and it was like, kids, you want to go to the beach? Like when you live in Grand Rapids, you don't go to the beach at 2 in the afternoon. So we went to the beach, and I made the mistake of, of saying, um, um, keep your clothes, we went with our clothes on, like, just put your feet in the water. Does that, that doesn't work for anyone else? Okay. Head first, they're swimming at Tunnel Park. But we live in Holland, so it wasn't that big. Also, okay, I got a quick one on tangents, but Bryson, as we're walking to the tunnel at Tunnel Park, Bryson says, we're on vacation. <laughs> like, Sweet, that's awesome. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our journey through the New Testament book of Acts, uh, series we're calling uh, Devoted. And the book of Acts recounts, again, the expansion of the early church starting in the city of Jerusalem as a, as a predominantly Jewish movement within the Jewish faith. Um, and then it expands outward to the Gentiles and outward geographically to the ends of the known world, the Roman Empire. And the, the book of Acts is predominantly following the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus' continuing work through the Spirit, at work through his people, the church. And that is this journey. We're starting with chapter 1, and we're going chapter by chapter all the way to the end of the book of, end of, the book of Acts. This morning we get to chapter 11. And chapter 11 begins uh, where... Peter, if you remember last week, we talked about Peter and Cornelius and the expansion of the church going out to Gentiles. And this was a huge paradigm shift, remember? So Peter goes back to Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11. We're not going to read this. I'm just going to summarize it. He goes back to Jerusalem and the church finds out what he did. And they said, you ate dinner with who? That was their concern. 
and he, and he explains what happens, and then they're like, okay, cool. You know, and then all of a sudden, it's like this pretty quick change, and then it shifts to where we're going to be focusing uh, to this, this morning, back to the north. There's these regions north of Jerusalem, and uh, the narrative, then the, the church begins to expand, and we're, we're going to be reading it first to the Jews, but then we, go, we focus in on Antioch, the first Gentile church in the Greek city of Antioch. And that's where we're going to be kind of spending our time this morning. Sound good? Uh, real quick side note, you know, we have three uh, church communities on one campus. Many of you know that. Um, if you're a visitor, welcome. But um, Pastor Bill, Pastor Aaron, and myself, every week we collaborate on these sermons. And uh, this week it was just awesome. You get in two, di three different sermons across campus, all in the same text of scripture, which shows how rich and robust God's word is. And so if you want a kind of a different take, check out some of the other sermons this week. I'd encourage you to do that. But we're going to be focusing on verses 19 through 30. And so if you're willing and able, uh, I'd invite you to please stand. And uh, as well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we'll be reading and listening together. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, Acts chapter 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks or Gentiles also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word continues to teach uh, us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later. Lord, may your word, may your spirit speak to us through your word. And Holy Spirit, may you challenge us, may you comfort us, may you bring us into, work, into your work, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And one of the, one of the fun things I love to do, um, love to ask kids, and our kids have been dismissed, but I love to ask them how old I am, because they come up with all kinds of answers all over. Well, I'm 38, so we'll just get that out there right away. I'm 38 years old, which means I was born in 1983, 
which means my childhood was kind of late 80s and then the 90s. Like a lot of my growing up was the 1990s. Anyone else grow up in the 90s? Yeah, all right, 90s, yeah, the 90s. So one of the things I've been noticing is a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies and stuff are, are, starting, to be, are starting to take place in the 80s and the 90s. And I think what they're doing is kind of drawing on the nostalgia of people in my age group. So it's like, which makes me kind of feel old. It's like, okay, now we're doing period pieces in the 80s and 90s. It just makes me feel old. Um, but it made me, I was just thinking about 90s fashion and 90s trends and the things that were around in the 90s. There's some examples um, of, of the 90s. But looking back at some of those trends uh, in fashion things, some of them are kind of r- ridiculous. But I just want to talk about them a little bit because it's kind of fun. Uh, the first thing, when I was growing up, like, we didn't have cell phones, okay? I didn't get my first cell phone until I was a sophomore at Hope College, and I ended up getting on a family plan with, with my buddy and his sister to save some money. Yeah, family plan. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But what we did have in, in the 90s were pagers. Anyone have a beeper or a, or a pager? Um, I had one. Uh, it didn't work. But I just put it in my pocket to look cool, right? So I had this, like, fake pager. Uh, we also didn't have skinny jeans. Like, you wouldn't wear skinny jeans. I know that's a fashion thing now. We had, like, the baggy jeans was the thing. And, like, that picture up on the screen are Jenko jeans. Does anyone remember Jenko jeans? Those are real jeans. I mean, it's like wearing, like, a skirt around each leg. I mean, it was, like, the bigger, the baggier, the better. Uh, those were the jeans. Uh, then it was, like, sun in or hydrogen peroxide, anyone put that stuff in your hair and your hair turns orange? Yeah, I had orange hair. Um, but then if you were like cooler, like Justin Timberlake when he was living his best life, part of uh, sync, he had like bleach blonde tips, you know, so that was like a cool thing. Um, anyway, the other thing is CDs. We didn't have MP3 players, we had CDs and like CDs were like gold and we had these huge CD cases that you'd like hide under your, your car seat because people would steal them because you had like hundreds of dollars worth of CDs. Anyway, this is 90s. Anyone? I'm getting a couple of. The, the final thing I want to talk about is the fashion trend in the middle. And we got the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or Will Smith, and it was the bib overalls with the one strap down. This was really cool back in the 90s. Now, me and my older brother, and I just talked to him this week, we, we, and he confirmed this story, but we convinced my mom to get us a pair of bib overalls, but we had to share them because they're kind of expensive. So, and we were kind of, so anyway, and he's in middle school, and I was like in grade school, and so we got these bib overalls, and we were so pumped about these things. Joel was the oldest, so he got to wear them first, so he wore the bib overalls, and I was just talking to him about it just this week, and he went to middle school, and he wore these things, and he had the one strapped down. And I mean, he just, he got cool looks and like high fives. And one of the cool kids was like, man, that's tight. You know, so, and so he got like a firm. So I'm like getting ready for middle school and I'm like, or not for grade school. I'm like, it's my turn. I'm going to wear these things. And I'm so excited because I'm going to look so cool. And so I had like my Paisley shirt on with my bib overalls and the one strap down. And I come walking into grade school and I probably got a little hitch in my step because I feel really cool, you know. And I'm waiting for like the praise and the adoration and the affirmations to come my way. And it didn't happen. I, I remember this still. I was, on, I was at recess, and one of the kids, who wasn't even like one of the cool kids, because we do that in middle school or whatever, but he looks at me, and he's like, what are you wearing, man? And I'm like, you know, my overalls, you know? I'm like, come on. And he's like, 
what are you, a farmer or something? <laughs> hey guys, look at this, farmer boy, farmer boy. And um, anyway, whoever says sticks and stones that are wrong. Because I was a kid and I went home and I like, I cried. I was so devastated because I thought this was my moment. That's a little dramatic. It was my moment. But I just thought this was going to go so well and I got made fun of uh, for wearing these bib overalls. And uh, to make matters worse, then the bib overalls, more story than you need to know, but there was a tear. And so then they got, nothing, nothing against Burlington Coat Factory, but at least in the 90s, they had a no return policy, which I knew for my mom was a big no-no. You know, Kohl's, you could return stuff. Anyway, so we couldn't even return the, the bib overalls. Anyway, more than you need to know. But I, I share this kind of fun, fun, funny, kind of sad story because it gets at this longing that's kind of deep within us, even at like a young age, this longing to fit in, right? And as like a kid, we, we desperately want to fit in. We want to we belong. And that longing to kind of fit in leads us to wear impractical outfits and crazy jeans, style our hair in funky ways, uh, listen to music because it's cool, even though it might not be edifying, um, and even act in ways like the guy who started making fun of me that we know is not right, but for him it was a way of, of fitting in by putting someone else down. This, this longing in us is pretty strong. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's not limited to just kids, right? Like even as adults, we have this longing to belong, to fit in. Even as the church there's this longing to kind, of, to kind of fit in, right? To not upset the culture around us. And if you think about the longing from the church's perspective, it actually, I think, comes from a good spot, like a, like a pretty good place. The church is desperate to fit in with our culture, to, to appeal to non-believers. And why is that? Because we want people to feel comfortable coming. Again, which is not all bad, because there's kind of this missional heartbeat behind it. But this longing to fit in can also be dangerous. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And thankfully, Acts 11 gives us some, some helpful truths as we have this conversation. Um, and so in order to get there, though, we have to, to kind of get into the context of chapter 11 in the book of Acts. Because the early church, as the, the church, the gospel goes out to Gentiles... Uh, they're trying to navigate how to live faithfully in a secular culture, okay? And for the first time, the gospel has gone out to Gentiles. Now there's this church, this community of Gentiles, of Greeks living in a city of Antioch. And to fully grasp what's kind of happening in the text, we need to know a little bit more about two things. This church, the community, the people as well as this ancient city of Antioch. And so let's dig into a little bit of the context in the text, but also some history to discover a little more about church, the church in Antioch. The text actually doesn't give us much detail about this specific church. Uh, on the screen, if you have your Bibles open, follow along, verse 20. All we're told from Luke is some of them went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, or Gentiles, right? Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. All Luke tells us in Acts chapter 11 is that a great number of Greeks in Antioch turned to Jesus and form a community of believers that we call a church. That's all Luke really gives us. 
Greek believers forming a church in Antioch. Now let's just talk about some more details about the church in Antioch. It's a Gentile church plant in, a cos- in the cosmopolitan city of Antioch. That's kind of the shorthand. Let's talk about each of them. First, it's a Gentile church plant. Last week we covered this kind of huge paradigm shift, like this radical shift that it, it would have been for a first century Jew to open God's covenant to Gentiles. We talked about that. And so then not only is the covenant now, now we have a church that's predominantly Greeks or Gentiles. This would have been mind-blowing, right? But here's the other ramification of this reality. You have, you have Gentiles who have some familiarity with the Jewish faith because they've been living in a city with other Jews, right, who have been spread out in the diaspora. But their knowledge and foundation of that Jewish faith was pretty limited. This is a church community with, with very little to no foundation to build their faith in Jesus upon. And what I mean by that is, is they know very little to nothing about the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They know very little about the prophecies that, that point to Jesus. They did not have, uh, they also didn't have Jewish practices and rhythms and customs, which kind of kept, would have kept them distinct from the culture, Right? And that would have directed their hearts toward a love, toward the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were, these were just Greek Gentiles who've been, who have heard about Jesus, who have now given their life to this Jesus and believed. That's the first thing. The second thing of note is they're living in the city of Antioch. Now, we maybe have heard of Antioch, or that name kind of sounds familiar, but, but Antioch is an important city, was an important city in the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, it was the third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria at this particular time. Estimates that the city of Antioch had about 200,000 people living, which is huge for an ancient city. Antioch's location, there's a map on the screen, north of Jerusalem. It's kind of in modern-day eastern Turkey. Uh, it's 15 miles upriver, inland, and so that location made it an ideal place for trade and commerce because it's on this, this, these land trade routes coming down, right, down into Jerusalem, into Egypt, to the east and to the west. It's kind of this connecting point. Because it's on a river inland, they also had access to the Mediterranean Sea, so they had access to all these sea-bound trade routes as well. And so it was this hub of commerce and activity and Roman culture. And because of that, that location, what, what the different Caesars and rulers did was invest in Antioch. And so Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus invested. And so different writings say, suggest that there were upwards of 17 temples in Antioch alone to various Greek gods and goddesses. There was a, a large theater, right, that would host plays. There was an amphitheater. There was a Roman stadium. There was also a two-mile-long paved road. Uh, Herod the Great actually paved this road with polished stones, right? And so this was a city that was important, and it was a place of prominence. Secondly, also, um, this is also a place, Antioch is the traditional location of some of the Jewish Maccabean revolt. So uh, second century B.C., uh, Antiochus attempted to force Greek culture on Jews in the Roman Empire, also desecrated the Jewish temple. 
And this led to the Maccabean revolt, which is an apocryphal works between our Old Testament and New Testament. And, and Antioch was a location where some prominent Jews were, were killed and martyred. And there they put a shrine uh, with like a sarcophagus and stuff. And so all of these things are happening in Antioch. Antioch is a city, a cosmopolitan center for the Roman Empire, a center of commerce, of culture, but also a place where Jews particularly would remember this conflict, right? All of these things in this one city. Antioch was a place where, where money, power, control, sex, sport, entertainment, pleasure, hedonism, all of these things kind of dominated the landscape. Does that sound a little familiar? Sounds a little familiar, right? Um, a lot of things have changed, but human desires are pretty similar throughout the centuries. More on that a little later. So there's this Greek Gentile believers starting a church community who are raised in this culture. Right? This is the air they breathe, the water they live in, the water they swim in. And this culture runs quite counter to the message and teaching of Jesus. And so this church plant is there. And, and what, what does the church in Jerusalem realize? They need some guidance to follow Jesus well in this context, in this city with that minimal foundation. And so we read ahead and the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas. Remember from chapter four, Barnabas, son of encouragement, it's fitting. And there's three things that the church in Antioch need that the text mentions that I wanna quickly cover this morning because I think there are some, some really important and helpful parallels to the church in America in our context today. Now, three things, when, it's not an exhaustive list. These are not the three only things the church needs, but these are the three things the text mentions and I think there's some parallels, and so these are the three things we're gonna talk about. The first thing that the church in Antioch needs as their beginning is encouragement. Encouragement. Verse 23 says, Barnabas encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now Barnabas is first sent to kind of check out what's going on. Is this legit? And we're told that when, when he saw what the grace of God had done, he encouraged them. He spoke an immediate word to encourage this new church of Gentile believers. The Greek word for encourage is parakaleo. Can you say that with me? Parakaleo. Parakaleo. Hopefully you like speaking Greek and Hebrew because I like that. Anyway, parakaleo. Anyway, parakaleo is a word that means to encourage and comfort, which has a certain connotation. But the same word can also mean to admonish or exhort, which kind of has a different kind of feel to it, right? Parakaleo is actually a compound word from the Greek prefix para, which sounds familiar, right? Uh, which means alongside, uh, parallel, parallel lines, alongside, same prefix right there. Uh, and then the verb, the Greek verb kaleo, which means call. And so this, this Greek word means, parakaleo means to encourage as well as to admonish. Literally, it means to call alongside. So the, so the first thing Barnabas does when he gets to this Gentile church is he comes alongside of them and offers a word of encouragement. A word where he's saying, God, stay true to the Lord with all of your heart. To translate, in other words, the, this culture 
is going to try to pull you back toward what is familiar. But that's not of the Lord. Remain true to Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. And, and, and think about that. This, this act of encouragement is such a simple, and yet it's a profound and powerful thing. Not just for the early church, but I think for each of us as well. I know it's for each of us. And my guess is that each of us have Barnabases in our lives. People who are encouragers. People who, who know the right thing to say at the right time. They speak the right word at the right moment when you're ready to receive it. Right, that moment when you're, when you're just ready to give up and, and you have that Barnabas in your life who says, you can do this. And this is how we're gonna do this, right? It's so important to have Barnabases in our life. And sometimes those words are, are encouraging and comforting. But I think true Barnabases also know when that word needs to be stern and challenging and convicting because we need both of those. And if you don't have a Barnabas in your life who can speak both encouragement and also a stern word, a word of challenge, find one. And th- or think of those Barnabases in your lives and, and let's be thankful for them or, and, and, and take the opportunity to be a Barnabas for other people. I, I think of, of the world of sports, right? Where, where you can push yourself so far by yourself, but when you have a coach or a crowd that's cheering you on, suddenly you can push yourself beyond what you thought was possible. Uh, I'm a Hope grad, um, are we familiar with the pull at, at Hope, right? The big, the big tug of war, if you're not familiar, big tug of war. Um, what, no matter what you feel about the pull, if you think it's awesome or ridiculous, I don't, I don't care. But the pull has a, a puller, and then there's a moraler. And the moraler's only job is to like, inc- or like yell at them so that they keep pulling harder because they're just pulling on a rope for like a few hours, right? But we need encouragers. We just need someone who can speak words of encouragement and challenge in our lives. So important. That's the first thing. The church in Antioch needs encouragement. The second thing is what Barnabas realizes is that the church needs more than just encouragement. Barnabas runs to the city of Tarsus. And and we know someone's there in Tarsus, right? A couple weeks ago. Saul, later to be the Apostle Paul, is in Tarsus. Barnabas runs off to Tarsus, grabs Saul, and brings him back to the church in Antioch because the church needs more than just encouragement. The church needs discipleship. We read in in verse 26 little details that we can just quickly read quickly over and miss, but for a whole year, a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The church in Antioch, again, remember, Gentile believers with little foundation and knowledge of God's grand plan through history, the the Jewish faith, right? They've been raised in the heart of Greek and Roman Hellenized culture. So this is like a new challenge for the church of Jesus Christ. There are things that the church, these, these Gentile believers, there's things that need to be unlearned from their surrounding culture And there's an entire foundation to build from the Hebrew scriptures of how Jesus fits into all of God's grand plan for redemption of the world. And Barnabas realizes, I think, that he needs someone else to help do this teaching and discipling and formation. And so he runs off to Tarsus and grabs Saul because Saul is the perfect man for the job. Remember Saul a few weeks ago, he was born in Tarsus. 
So he was born, in, in, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that it's a Greek-influenced city. And so he understands the cultural pressures of Rome, and, and he's lived with that tension. How do we remain distinct as the Jewish people? But then we know that about Saul as well is that at a young age, he went to Jerusalem, right? And he studied under this Rabbi Gamaliel, who was just world-renowned, like, like one of the best Bible scholars. And so he knew the scriptures inside and out from an early age. And what we think is that that Saul went to Tarsus and spent years studying the scriptures in light of this revelation of Jesus Christ, working through all the theology of how the scriptures point to Jesus and we see that fruit in the New Testament, right? Saul is like the perfect person for this role to help a Gentile group of believers navigate how to live in Antioch with little to no foundation. And so they spend a year laying that foundation out. A whole year. We read it in a blip, but a whole year doing discipleship and formation and teaching and learning. And what the beautiful thing about this is we see God's hand in this because the church of Antioch becomes like the sending church where, where Saul would become the apostle Paul and he would go out to the ends of the earth. It's the perfect missionary, right? Not the perfect, like he's perfect, but just like he's prepared for this moment. Amazing. I get like, I get chills thinking about how God has been at work through history. And they, see, the thing is, encouragement, as important and as powerful as it can be, is not enough. We need to understand God's word. We need to understand and we need to see the culture around us because, because oftentimes when we are living in a culture, there's blind spots. And we don't see the blind spots when, when the culture we're living in is the air we breathe and the culture that we've been raised up. It's hard for us to see the blind spots. Like a silly example, like 90s, those Jenko jeans, that's what skaters wore. Do you realize how impractical and dangerous those jeans would be for like someone skateboarding? Anyone else see that? That's like, that's really dangerous, man. Anyway, but the same is true for us. We live in a culture and for us, we have blind spots. And right now, it's almost like two subcultures developing in America. And so like for us, it's really easy for us to see the blind spots of one, but sometimes our blind spots are, are probably in the one that we find ourselves resonating more with. And so for each of us, we need, we need people like Saul. We need gifted and insightful and discerning teachers to help us see clearly people like Saul. This leads to the third thing. We need encouragement. We need, we need um, discipleship. And the third thing we find in this passage is the church is distinct. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be distinct. Verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Luke makes it a point here in chapter 11 for the reader to know that it was at this point in history when followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Now, this both makes a, lot of sense, makes a lot of sense, but it's also significant. It makes a lot of sense because at this point, the movement is no longer a movement within the Jewish faith, right? As it goes out to Gentiles, it becomes something new. So this term in this point in history to call them Christians makes a lot of sense because it's something new and you give new names to new things, right? That's how we make distinctions between things. I don't call an orange an apple because it's not. It's an orange. Okay, you get what I'm saying? You call new things 
new names. You give new names to new things. And so this is something new, something distinct. It's distinct from Judaism, but also what's so important is that it is something distinct from the culture of Antioch and the Roman Empire. Because his name Christian actually, is believed, was, was originally used as an insult, kind of like farmer boy, right? It was used as an insult. They were like, oh, these Christ followers, right? They're following this guy, Jesus, who's the Christ, who's been crucified, who's dead, right? They use that as an insult. The, the, the kind of cool thing is the church of Jesus Christ didn't like try to resist or fight that label. They said, yeah, yeah, we are Christians. We are those who follow Jesus Christ. And they embrace this label and the rest is history. But then Luke gives us a concrete example of how the church of Jesus Christ in Antioch was distinct from the world around them. We read on verse 27 and following that there's a prophecy. This guy Agabus from Jerusalem comes down, down like from elevation. Uh, don't be confused with north-south. Anyway, but down to, Ant to Antioch and, and prophesies that there's a severe famine coming in the Roman Empire. And then Luke gives us this footnote that this is a famine that actually happened during Claudius, right? And so what happens? They hear about this prophecy, and, and before the, the prophecy comes to be, before the famine happens, this church of Gentiles in Antioch preemptively say, what are we going to do? And they start putting together resources and monies and give to the churches in Judea. Now, some details there, right? They, they, are, they are distinct in their radical generosity. And not just radical generosity, but radical generosity shown to people of a different ethnicity living hundreds of miles away. They are Gentiles giving generously to Jewish communities hundreds of miles away. They're Christians, but you have to understand this is radically unusual, to put it lightly. This is totally distinct for the ancient world, for a, for a community of people to behave in such a way. This is distinct. And, and might I add, this is a good way to be distinct, living radically generous, right? But this same theme, the same trend would continue for centuries. I've been reading a little pamphlet, a little book by Tim Keller, How to Reach the West. And uh, there's going to be a link in the blog this week. Um, but he's just talking about how do we reach our culture. And, and he references another book, and I can't remember the name of the book, but he, he mentions in that little pamphlet five ways that the early church was distinct and different from the Roman world around them. It's fascinating. It's really insightful. Uh, but a couple of the ways that the church was radically different from the Roman Empire, they were, they were radically multi-ethnic, Right? The Church of Jesus Christ, as it extended to, to Gentiles, it brought people from all different races and ethnicities together. That's the first distinctive. The second one was there was this active care for the poor, right, in society, even across multi-ethnic boundaries, right? That's, that's totally radically different. The second thing is they were um, anti-retaliatory, non-retaliatory. So like if someone came after the, the church, the response was not revenge, but seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. That's, by the way, still radical, right? We don't, the, the world doesn't act that way, right? The other, the other ways that the, the church was radically different was there was this value for human life from the womb all the way to the grave. 
radical, radical value for human life and no delineation based on social status or gender, right? Radical delineation. And then the final one is the, the church of Jesus Christ lived by a totally different sex ethic, right? That the only vessel that was strong enough to contain this powerful thing of, of sex and sexuality was the vessel of marriage, right? So radically, radically different. And the church lived out these distinctives in visible uh, ways, right? And so um, abortion was not common in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire because it was too dangerous. And so if you didn't want your kid in the Roman Empire, and this is horrible, um, but you would, if you didn't want your kid, you would, you would throw them away. And they would place a child on like a trash heap. Awful. And what would happen in the Roman Empire is that, is that, is that like slave traders would come and take these kids and raise them as a means to make money. That's horrible. The church of Jesus Christ valued life and, they, and they, they lived it out. They would go to the trash heap. And the church of Jesus Christ would take that child, bring that child into their home and raise them as their own. That's powerful. The bubonic plague when most people are fleeing cities to save their life, understandably so, because this highly contagious, deadly disease, the church of Jesus Christ was the one running into the cities to care for the sick and needy. Radically, radically distinct in all of the ways that look and reflect the life and teaching of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. And friends, this is a powerful and important word for the church today. The church in America. Because, friends, we have the same opportunity as the church in Antioch. A chance to be distinct from the world, distinct from the culture around us. That, that doesn't mean, let me be clear, that doesn't mean that we just simply do everything the opposite of what the world is saying. Because if that's our response, well, that's the world, we're just going to do the opposite. Who's still defining the terms? The world is. Right? We are distinct and we are different, but we are different in all of the ways that align with Jesus' life and teachings on the kingdom. And so that means sometimes we, we affirm the direction and the trajectory of our culture. In fact, some of those trajectories were, were led by the church. So yeah, like we, 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 we preach against racism and we preach toward equality. Those are things that are in line with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that means we also, as the church of Jesus Christ, needs to push back against the stream of culture. We need to speak against this kind of Darwinian materialism that, that right? Well, materialism and greed, we should speak against that. We should speak against this, this new framing of the individual that says, whatever I feel like is the, the deepest layer of truth. Like, really? Because if we're just following our desires, the scriptures call that being a slave to the flesh. That's not freedom, but that's how our world is starting to define freedom, right? Like, just do it, just you be you. So we're just, that's just being a slave to our desires, which we all know aren't always good. <laughs> And this takes careful encouragement. It takes discipleship. It also takes spiritual discernment. 
Because honestly, too often I think the church has fallen for the same temptation as me as a grade school kid, desperately trying to fit in and follow the trends of culture. As if we're relevant to culture, that's how we make a difference. And on the flip side of that, on the other end of the spectrum, some of us, we get so consumed with trying to save our culture and to bring our culture back in line, as if... Both strategies are are under the presumption that the path toward the world's salvation is through culture. What's not? That's not the path. That's nonsense. Do Do you know why, as a kid, do you want to know why, as a kid, I wanted so desperately to fit in? At the heart of it? Insecurity. I didn't know who I was. And I think the same is true for, for, the, for the church. When, when the church is bending to culture and letting the culture bend us in this way or that, good or, or against, it's insecurity. An insecurity of who we are. I don't know who I am. But when a person or the church of Jesus Christ knows exactly who we are, and as for a Christian in the church, our identity is firmly grounded in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Right? When we know that, we don't have to worry about fitting in or gaining the approval of others. Instead, we can be those who are secure in who we are. We can be the kind of people in churches that lead by example and show the world the way of Jesus, a way of, to, that leads toward life and human flourishing. That's exactly what Barnabas and Saul were doing in Antioch. They were encouraging the church, discipling the church so that they would know exactly who they are in Jesus Christ. They spent a year doing that. And in knowing who they are, they allowed them to follow him to be a community of people doing life radically different than anyone else around them in all the ways that look like Jesus. And friends, that's the opportunity for us today in America. This is your encouragement. May we together continue to pursue discipleship and spiritual formation so that we will show the world by our lives and our example the way of Jesus. It's not found in a political party. It's not found in an ideology. It's found in Jesus Christ as revealed by the Spirit and His Word, and we need God's help. So let's go to God in prayer. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your Word. Again, Lord, we, just, we thank you that your word remains so, so relevant. Even 2,000 years later. And certainly, Lord, there's things very different about our context and the context of Antioch. But what remains true is, is that, Lord, we're, we are image bearers of you and yet we're, we're broken by our own sinful, selfish desires. And we need a savior. We need the God who, who saw us in our brokenness, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, died on a cross, rose again, so that, Lord, we would not be left in our brokenness and despair, but we would have a savior who loves us, and who's with us even today, 2,000 years later, to show us what that looks like. Lord, may we continue to be a community of faith who challenges, who recognizes what we see in our world so that we can live in such a way that is different from the world. And it's not right or left, it's, it's the way of Jesus. 
Give us wisdom. Give us, give us discernment. Give us your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a couple of reminders, fellowship time under the, down the stairs over here under the canopy. Uh, if you're looking for lunch, Mika's lunch, fundraiser, good opportunity as well. Um, what we're talking about is something that, that I personally struggle with um, because I want people to feel love. Anyway, just to say that, and I'm, I'm spending some time in quiet this morning and 
here's the, the passage that is in my devotional. It's in Galatians 1, and Paul writes this. Um, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man or was taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that passage just, just cuts <laughs> and convicts. Um, but I hope the Spirit is speaking uh, to each of us and... Uh, I gotta, I gotta not give another sermon, so I'm gonna give a blessing instead. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.